0: Good morning. Grateful that you guys are all here this morning as we kind of dive in uh, to God's Word. And a way to do that, we're going to be in James chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. So feel free to take some time in your Bibles to, to open it up and, and get ready. Um, I wanted to, to start off with a little bit of story from my history, my, uh, my lineage, I guess. I grew up in a small little town in the southwest corner of New Mexico called Silver City. Apparently Silver City was started, or uh, the place that it was started, was a, an old Apache campsite. And then uh, you know, early on when the Spaniards had come over, they, they jumped in and began to, to build things there and started to do some mining. And in the process of mining, they discovered, yeah, you would guess it, copper. Copper not silver. I know I'm getting there. Hold on. So as they began to mine some copper and, and find some prestige, some, some more prospectors came in in the early 1800s and they actually found in this place called Chloride Flats, silver. Thus the reason why they named it Silver City. And in the process of those things, they began to grow and they had this huge, um, I, such a huge kind of tent city around Silver City as the, um, as the, the miners and the prospectors came in to, to make their fortune. And we didn't see much of that when when i was growing up but one of the things that we did see growing up was some of the old abandoned copper mine shafts just outside um not too far from my home so as young boys will do i was a bit of a free-range kid my, my parents just kind of allowed us to do some things so i, I ran around and did a lot of stuff and we had a kind of this, this small circle of friends and if you jumped on your bike and you made your way up this mountain right next to my house we could find what you would have called these mine shafts where they used to mine copper. Don't try this at home, just FYI. What we used to do is we'd go up there, we'd ride our bikes about 15 minutes and then the games that young boys play began. It's the double dog, triple dog, dare you kind of stuff that really started the process of seeing how long and how deep you could go into these mine shafts. Yes, I know it's surprising I'm still alive, honestly. And so what we would do is we would decide that if we, if we would, whoever, whoever got the triple dog dare would go into this mine shaft and you could see how far you could go. Now, notoriously, kind of instinctually, what happened in in all of our lives is that you would go far enough where you could still see a glimmer of light where it wasn't totally dark and then you turn and you'd run back as fast as you can. And they were kind of keeping time to see who could stay in the longest. But one of the things we learned is stupid kids doing stupid things is that the deeper you go, the darker it gets. Kind of one of those life lessons, I guess that I haven't necessarily applied in tons of aspects of my life until I encountered James chapter two. Because i think that that's exactly what he's talking about this morning one of the things that will be dissected in the context of the conversation of james chapter 2 is our hearts and i think james says what i learned as a young boy the deeper you go the darker it gets and what i mean by that is that there are things underneath the surface in our hearts that are motivating and shifting our perspective away from the truth of who Christ has called us to be, that the centrality of the gospel and the rescuing nature of Jesus at times doesn't Tend to penetrate as deeply into those dark places of our hearts. And so what James has been doing through the first chapter is continuing to churn in us this reality that in the gospel we truly lack nothing, that, that there's a sufficiency that Jesus provides for his people through an intimate relationship with him where we are not just those who have been rescued, we are those who are constantly being rescued, that there's a transforming work that the reality of what jesus is doing in our life and like mark said last week one of the ways in which we understand those things is james 1 would tell us that we receive the implanted word of god with meekness there's a level of humility that takes place as god's word begins to generate churn and dissect the motives that exist inside of our hearts, and that's what's so critical. The reason he does that is not to point fingers or push against areas of sin. It's because what James would call us and and say is that what we're being exposed to is the, the law of liberty or the royal law of love. He's saying that the reality of us knowing that we need to be transformed, as difficult as it is to see those deep, dark areas of our hearts, is a good thing because what we find in the gospel is freedom from those areas that attach their lives to us and pull us away from intimacy with Christ. And so we have, right at the very beginning, the most valuable thing in all of the universe is a deep abiding intimacy with Christ. The God of the universe at work in our lives through faith in Jesus Christ, that is continuing to transform and change us on a regular basis as an act of love and mercy that God is doing on behalf of his people and for the sake of his glory. And so, As we learned in these old abandoned mine shafts, the deeper you go, the darker it gets. And so he takes us through an avenue this morning where I would say that there is a level of darkness, if you will, that he's gonna shine some light on, and he's gonna address it as called the sin of partiality. Now, maybe that doesn't rest heavy on many of us. We think, well, I'm not even totally sure what that means, but. Ultimately, what he's going to expose for us this morning is the motives that exist in our heart that would draw us to draw distinctions and give value to some people above others. That we, in selfish ways, distinguish and delineate um, value of people based on what they do for us or the level of comfort we have with them sounds like a lot of fun right so what mark said last week is the gospel exposes what we need right um gives us uh, exposes what we what we have inside of our heart gives us what we need and then calls us to perseverance but the end of james chapter one and i just want to read it for you is he he gives us this picture of what true religion is and i honestly think that it sets the precedent for what he's going to talk about next. And so if you read, if I'll read for us, James chapter one, and um, we're going to look at verses 26 and 27. He says, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. And then he tells us what true religion is, true relationship with God, religion that is pure and undefiled before God is this to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself abst- uh, um, uh, unstained from the world. And so he gives us these two categories. And the first I'd explain it this way. When you think about pure and undefiled religion, what you have is this act, this reality that the, the truth of who Jesus is, is working itself out in our life, where we are longing to serve those who can do nothing for us in return. We're willing to give and to wash and to move towards those who won't benefit us at all. D.L. Muddy put it this way, "He said I believe that everybody's Bible should be wrapped in shoe leather. And what he means is that we're actually living out the truth of what Jesus is doing inside of us. And so it, it gives us this picture of those who understand the depth in which they've been rescued, move to those who deeply need rescue without any expectation that they will receive anything in return. Pure, undefiled religion is that which sees every individual in the scope of all humanity as valuable and designed by God. Because God has given them value, not because we've given them value because they can do anything for us. It's specifically focused on the scope of God's redemptive love and that no one is too far away from the reality of God's pursuing, rescuing, transforming love. It's a good thing. And then he says, and also to keep yourself unstained from the world. And then he's going to move into this conversation about partiality. I think what he's doing is he's dissecting our motives in suggesting that as we get together in the midst of an assembly, so he's talking to, likely a house church, but it's also written to those people who have been persecuted and have been scattered around. And he's saying, here's what I want you to realize that if you look inside your heart, or the scriptures look inside of our hearts, as you look in the mirror and expose the areas that are going on in your motives, there are likely implanted in there distinctions that we make for people that aren't God's distinctions. They're personal distinctions. They're distinctions and differences and dissections that we make to be able to attribute value to others based on what they can do for us versus the value that they innately have as created loved ones of God. So let's look at this chapter. We're gonna go through the first 13 verses and walk through it a little bit. And again, just setting that caveat that the the deeper you go, the darker things get. I recognize that there's a sense in which what what James has been called to do is, is expose and dissect motives of our hearts and likely, as even I was reading this text, it it ruffled many of my own feathers in the sense of wrestling with what is it that I have done or how have I even considered committing the sin of partiality. So he's talking to believers here. And we see that clearly in chapter two, verse one, because he addresses them as brothers. And here's what he says. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold to the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. He says, then he gives us an example for if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly and the poor man in shabby clothing also comes in and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and you say you sit here in a good place while you say to the poor man you stand over there or sit down at my feet you have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts listen my beloved brothers Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you, the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scriptures, you shall love your neighbor as yourself you are doing well but if you show partiality you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as a transgressor you for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it for who he who said do not commit adultery also said do not commit murder if you commit adultery but not murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty, for judgment without mercy. Um, for judgment is without mercy to those who have shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So as James unfolds and, and really starts to, to dive down deeper into the motives of our hearts as believers, what he begins to expose is that there is a sense in which one of the things that needs formation in our lives is an accurate view, not only of God, but an accurate view of humanity. That there's a sense in which what's being challenged here, as we live in the world and seek to be gospel lights in the culture around us, is that often there are places where we find ourselves averted away from because of a sense underneath that there is not a desire for those individuals that are so distinct and so different for us to know the life-transforming power of Christ. There's a level of comfort that gets competed against as we're moving towards these relationships and realizing that we're encountering people that fundamentally don't understand the truth of the gospel fundamentally don't care about what jesus has for their life and actually are not only opposed but enemies of the truth of what god has said and so what james is doing is equipping us with two things to see what's in our heart and to move us towards those places with truth because what we need to understand or what we're growing in our understanding of is that those who have been rescued seek to see others rescued by the transforming power of christ so experiencing the rescuing grace of christ changes our view of humanity and so I think really one of those most deliberate portions of the scriptures that James is writing, the half brother of Jesus, is he's really communicating to uh, Jews at the time, those Jews who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ, who've been embedded in a system where there are distinctions, there are categories from which individuals are able to encounter God in the context of what the reality of that relationship with God looks like and, and how Jesus has changed so much that this promise. Messiah has, has opened up the reality of, of those who, who aren't nationally Jews are, are able to come in. And I think God's always had a concern for humanity, but there's this sense in which one of the places that they grow is they've been drawing distinctions based on their own personal preferences rather than understanding the value that every individual has in their understanding through the understanding of who Christ has called them to be. So experiencing rescuing grace, changes our view of humanity. Well, how does it change our view of humanity? Well, I think it does a few things. I think it tells us right at the very beginning that all of the, whether they're rich or the poor, and again, his analysis is not against the rich and the poor, his analysis is how we're treating people. And so it's actually a a corporate confession or a corporate call that he's doing here in James chapter 2. And he's saying, look, as you look at people and you look at them in the face and they come into your assembly and you are experiencing people on a regular basis in your daily walks. How do you relate with them? It's a fundamental question. What's your approach in interacting with the world that either comes in or as you go out into the world, you and I on a daily basis are experiencing people that are fundamentally different than us. They're fundamentally different categories, different theologies, different concepts of God, different perspectives on life. I mean, we live in a world where you can barely even have these conversations because it seems so volatile. How then do we move into those spaces? I think James tells us that we see every individual in every situation at every time with innate value given to them by God that there's an operation that the Lord is working as we're operating under the law of love, the royal law of love that, that Christ gives us, that, that James tells us about, and that royal law is what? He's being clear and we, maybe we say it too much or maybe we don't say it enough. Love your neighbor as yourself. Like there's this sense that that's a, a paradigm shaping reality as we encounter and work and think about the realities of how we interact with the world. If I understand my value and love before Christ and I've been rescued and am being transformed by his love, compassion, and transformation, then the deepest thing I want for all those who I encounter, regardless of the brokenness that they bring to the table, is I want them to know Jesus. I want them to know the value that they have in Christ, that every single person in the scope of all humanity is on some journey, some search for something. Most of the time it's value. Sometimes it's happiness. Sometimes it's just to find out who they really are inside. And they're looking at all of these thousands of different dead end streets to figure out what that means. How do I become the best version of myself as the world would teach us? And as we have those conversations with people that we interact in the world, we would say the deepest value that you could ever experience would be to be loved by your creator to be experiencing the transforming power of his work. And you can have that relationship through understanding that Christ has died on your behalf. And what does that death mean? Well, it means that you aren't this constant hamster wheel of trying to manage or mismanage your own sin or my own sin. But we realize the depth of darkness that exists inside and that Christ paid for all of that sin. And that sin has been so redeemed that you've been rescued and invited into a relationship. All you need to do is respond in faith. In trusting that God will continue a work in you as we realize our deep need for him. But I think often what James is getting at is that we struggle to encounter the world around us and the brokenness we see maybe within our midst is because we are unaware of how deeply we own, we need our own personal rescue, the own personal transforming work of Christ in our lives that there are still distinctions. There is a place inside of my own heart, and I would venture to guess yours as well. At times, we feel like we're better, more valuable. There's more significance. Something that has averted our attention away from the depths of darkness that surrounds the world that we live in. James is seeking to compel us to move towards, not away from, those challenges. And how do we do that? Well, we come armed with our testimony, right? Here's where the intersection of God's transforming grace has met the darkness of my own sin. And the darkness of my own sin kept me separated from God. But God pursued me with his loyal love and put people around me that told me about the truth of the gospel. and the transforming power of Christ and his love and affection for me and then it intersected my darkness and then as I placed my faith in Christ one of the things that began to be transformed was this knowledge that my value doesn't come based on what I do or who I think I am my value comes from the fact that God has deemed me his own that happiness significance value purpose all comes stemming from the truth of Jesus's work in my life Gandhi, one of the leaders in the Hindu church, wrote an autobiography, and he's, he was talking about his experience with the Christian church. He came to the States for a while after reading the four gospels and decided he was kind of on the verge of really committing to Christianity. And so he came into a church, and as most Hindus would, he was dressed very differently than anyone else. And there was an usher that had come up to him and said, hey, I was curious what you're doing here. And he said, I was trying to figure out a bit about Christianity. He said, well, it seems like you've already made your decision. You should probably go worship with your own kind of people. And he said, well, if the Christian church has the caste system, then I might as well just remain a Hindu. And, and I know that that's a dramatic story in the sense that I would guess that not one of us would, would avert or say those things to anyone here. But there can be an undercurrent at times in any Christian church about those who would not feel like they fit in because they don't necessarily line up with specific things. When in reality, what we want is we want them here as a way to expose them to the truth and the value of who Jesus is, that the reality is what we desire is that they come to faith in Christ. And he begins that transforming work, not that they hold some other specific position that we hold. We want God to be the one that does the change. And so we want to introduce you to the reality and the scope of Jesus Christ. And I think that that's where James does this so effectively. He said, let's just take an instance. You've got two people, two newcomers, they come to church this morning, and one is dressed to the hill. Armani suit, really nice car, making their way in, and, and you, you, you see them. And the second you see them, here's what you see. If this person became a member of the church and I could get them to give, we would have no problems with our budget. I mean, you, I'm not just saying these things out of, Nowhere, like those things exist inside of our heart. You see, you see a poor man dressed, smelly, shabby, clothes, torn and ripped. And they make their way into the church. And the first sense that you see is this guy's going to take a lot of work. (laughs) I don't know if I have the bandwidth, so much time, so much effort. They've got so, so many needs. Both of those situations devalue the cross. They devalue the reality with the the, the sense in which God is calling us to is that each of those individuals, just like everyone else who sits in this church, is in deep need of the transforming power of Jesus Christ. And in that sense, we are compelled to realize that at times we have drawn distinctions that the Bible doesn't draw. We've assessed and assigned value over and above the value given to them by their creator from the very beginning. The the Psalms tell us, right, that that God knew them before they were in their mother's womb, that there was a purpose and a significance and a value, and that value and purpose is discovered through faith in Jesus Christ. And yet there's an aversion at times to the church because it feels semi or can feel semi-judgmental. So where do we go with that? Because I think there is a place where we can't diminish truth, right? That's the tension that I think we walk as believers. We, we realize that the Bible says specific things about specific areas and truth remains true regardless of whether we believe it or not. And yet, in the context of those things, there's the, the movement towards wondering, well, I don't wanna just not talk about the truth of what God says, but I also don't wanna push people away from the life-transforming power of the gospel. And so where does James compel us to start? I think when he's addressing the sin of partiality, he compels us to start at the place of confession. That there's a level of recognition that at times we've miscalculated God's pursuing love on people that we might struggle with. I think he says it this way, the world's nobodies are God's somebodies. The church has no business judging as the world does based on criteria, status, significance, or what value you can bring to an institution. I think what he's moving us towards is realizing that innately value exists because it's been given to us as a gift from our creator. And we discover more incrementally our value as we discover more about the creator's value and love for his people the greatest thing that we could do in the context of ministry here at the church is that we would rather someone come to faith in jesus christ rather than agree with us on a specific position i think that's where the feathers get ruffled (laughs) because i think so much of the conversation are position oriented conversations, not gospel oriented conversations. The world's nobodies are God's somebodies. The church desperately desires to be a place where all forms of brokenness are able to come in, find some level of safety, encounter the truth of Christ, and then Christ begins this transformative work of implementing change. We could never expect that people should feel that they should get their lives together before they come in. Not the least of which, none of us have our lives together. (laughs) Just FYI, myself included, right? There's the the deeper you go, the darker it gets, right? There's, There's work that God is doing regularly on all of our lives. And so that's why we as a church have progressively and consistently prayed to be a home for the hurting. As you saw in our invocation, there's a desire for those who are weary, those who are weak, those who are, are broken, those who have just a dismantled view of their own identity, those, the confusion that exists amongst the world, all of the different voices that they're listening to. The desire is that the truth of the gospel would direct them towards Jesus. And so that's why we, we communicate and, and unashamedly preach the truth of God's word and we preach the scriptures because we want people to know that as it directs us towards Jesus, it's not so that we can feel judgmental, it so that your life can be changed by encountering the truth of who Christ is and that you understand and experience the value of who you are because Christ has given you value and he cares deeply for you and every area of pursuit that you find seeking to find love in this world will unequivocally and unavoidably and always disappoint. There's always gonna be a place where you're seeking to be loved by a broken world, you'll be disappointed by that love. It will never meet the desires of your heart but the perfect law of love always does always draws us into those places. Jim Simbola, who's a pastor, was a pastor of Brooklyn Tabernacle, was talking about the biggest sin in America. And he was just talking with a friend, and they were saying, you know, if you had to identify the biggest sin of America, what would it be? And, and so many of us would go down a lot of different roads of thinking about what the greatest sin of America is. And then he says this, the number one sin of the church in America is that pastors and leaders on their knees crying out to God, bring us the drug addicted, bring us the prostitutes, bring us the destitutes, bring us the gang leaders, bring us those who have AIDS, bring us the nobodies that no one else wants, whom only you can heal, and let us love them in your name until they are whole. Ouch, I mean seriously, like there's just this conviction of considering that reality of of what James is compelling us to, that the sin of partiality is, is deeper than just drawing distinctions. It's assigning value to those that we think can contribute or make our lives better. It's not about realizing that we are those who are deeply being rescued by God and deeply seek others to be rescued. So I think he finishes with this, and I think it's interesting because he moves us now to kind of one of the objections. It's not necessarily stated in this text, but I think it would be a natural objection that would come out uh, based on what he's saying. And he said, okay, if you really fulfill the royal law of love, verse 8, according to the scriptures, then love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. But if you show partiality, and he doesn't pull any punches, you're committing sin. And he says, you're convicted by the law as a transgressor. So, if there's any sense where you and I have drawn distinctions between individuals based on some sort of appearance or based on something, we've committed a sin against the law. But here's the objection: well, that's not as bad of a sin as others, right? It's not that significant. And, and James says, "Nope, I'm not. I'm not buying it." He's saying, if you've committed adultery or you've committed murder, even though you've broken just one of the law, it doesn't matter. You're still a lawbreaker. And so, whatever category you think is an acceptable sin, you come to the realization that there's not an acceptable sin. It's all in need of being redeemed and rescued by the transforming power of Christ. And so we don't get off the hook. He he moves us to say, look, if you've received mercy, then you'll be that which extends mercy. So we need to understand how deeply it is that we've received mercy from Christ. Here's what it is. I think that essence of this whole thing in James chapter 2 is this love grows in the soil of truth love grows in the soil of truth What I mean by that is that the outcome of us having our lives impacted by the truth of God's word, we're receiving the truth of God's word as, as James tells us, with, with meekness, the implanted word of God, we're receiving with meekness, we're realizing that we need change. The illustration that James used last week was, you look at yourself in the mirror and then you turn away and you forget what you saw. The greatest mercy that you and I can experience is that we look in the mirror, we see what's really there, and then we turn towards Christ, allowing him to be the part of changing us that we're willing to confess that we are lawbreakers, that we have committed and assigned value based on selfish motives, and God has assigned value based on his purposeful love. And in the process of those things, what we're then moved towards is not an aversion away from brokenness, but opening the doors and saying, we want all the brokenness we can get. Because there's a sense in which that brokenness is what God is going to deal with in drawing you to himself. And whatever discomfort that might give us in this earthly life pales in comparison that God is building a kingdom for eternity. And that's what matters. There will be discomfort as we open our souls. And even what I would invite you to pray this next week is God, help me see the brokenness that's already around me. Because I would guarantee each and every single one of us that it's there in our midst, we don't have to go and find it. Every person around us, God has sovereignly and providentially placed as some who either need encouragement in the gospel or need to understand the truth of the gospel. So pray, God, help me see the brokenness that surrounds me. And as I move towards law of love, as I move towards thinking that, that I love my neighbor as I love myself, that I see the value Christ has given me and I want that value to be on top of them, it moves me towards them, not away from them. That I have those discussions, that I move to thinking about those relationships. Because love is planted in the soil of truth. We desire, God, God cares about people more than positions. And in the process of those things, he's the source of change. So the best thing that can change a person's mind is what? Jesus. The thing that changes a person's heart and philosophy of life is Jesus. It's not the most cogent argument in the world to convince someone of why they're wrong. It's the need for Jesus to transform their life like he's transforming yours and mine. Love your neighbor as yourself means that you recognize your need for rescuing grace, and you passionately care about others experiencing the rescuing grace from Christ as well. Would you pray with me?